know the vibes. We are back with another episode. Myself, Mo Mutsi, alongside the legend that is BJ Armstrong. But today we're joined by a very, very special guest. A mastermind of NBA front offices now on his way to taking over the media world. Mr. Ryan McDonough, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Mo, BJ. It's always good to be on with you guys talking basketball. One of the great things about technology is we can be in different states or different countries and do this show. But as long as we're talking hoops, especially in the middle of the season with the trade deadline coming up just a few months away from the playoffs, I'm excited about it. And it's always great to join you too. Well, Ryan, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. And, and ladies and gentlemen, when I say this is a true friend, this is one of my dearest friends in the business. One of the, you know, he was great at what he did but he's even a better human being. And one of my, I'm so happy, so proud to call him a true friend. And thank you again for joining us. And now he's in the media, sharing his knowledge, informing us. This is how I know who has cap money out here as an agent. I just go listen to Ryan McDonough. He's everywhere in the media. So all of the listeners here, please take a look and find him wherever you can find him and get your basketball podcast, radio, TV. He's everywhere. Now he's gracing our presence in the international market here with us. So Ryan, thank you again for taking the time. Oh, thanks, BJ and Mo. It's, it's fun to do international shows for me. Uh, one of my main roles, especially with the Boston Celtics, which I imagine we'll get into here in a minute, was international scouting. Uh, so I've been fortunate enough, as has BJ and Mo, to watch games you know, all over the world. Um, it, it's a big world in basketball. You go to FIBA events, you go to the European Championships, and you meet a lot of interesting people. So that, that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. In, in addition to NBA basketball and college basketball, the international game and uh, some of the relationships you form along the way. We have listeners tuning in from all across Europe and all across the world. So you guys, you might recognize a familiar face in the stands in the near future when you're watching some of these EuroLeague games, etc. But if you don't know, if you're a newer fan to the NBA, Ryan was an assistant general manager in the front office on my personal favorite team of all time, the 08 Celtics, because my family all lives in Boston. So that has a special place in my heart. And of course, he became oh, one of the youngest oh. GMs in the NBA. When I saw my friends, Ryan was coming on the show they were like, is that the youngest GM ever? I said, it's one of the youngest GMs ever for the Phoenix Suns. BJ doesn't want to hear about the Celtics because let's dive straight into it, right? <laughs> if you're watching this on YouTube, we're available on YouTube too. You can see behind Ryan, he's got two jerseys. Of course, got the legendary Bill Russell, but he also has a Phoenix Suns jersey. And the Phoenix Suns team that you see before you today, that's been to the finals last season, Ryan had a huge part to play in drafting Devin Booker, selecting DeAndre Ayton, trading for Mikel Bridges on draft night. So, He's a big part of the reason why that team has come together. But BJ, you need to hit the people with what you told me on the phone the other day because you came with the hot take after watching a game on, on Saturday or Sunday night. Well, you know, listen, when we talk about the Phoenix Suns, right, I, I want to hear Ryan's explanation. I always give Mo the follow of talk about roster construction. And you sat in that seat, Ryan, and people don't give enough emphasis about how difficult it is, especially today. I think more than any other time in professional basketball, that is probably the most difficult thing because you have salary cap, you have, you know, owners, you have all these external things to deal with. Ryan, can you share with us how difficult it is to construct a team in today with all of the things and all the variables that you have to deal with? Yeah, there are a number of different ways I could go with this answer, BJ. As you know, having done the job in the Bulls uh, front office, 
Um, I, I think, as you mentioned, there are a number of factors today that make the job more challenging than ever, uh, starting with social media and starting with the <laughs> amount of different um, news entities or, or bloggers and podcasts. And look, the interest in the game is great. Um, but what that means is you're always on call, right? You, you never get a break. There's always a crisis uh, potentially lurking around the corner. Um, so that is the most challenging part of the job. Another big change, uh, BJ uh, came into the league a little before I did, but uh, we've been doing this for decades now, BJ and right. I have. Another big change, uh, is, as you guys know, is just how big the staffs have gotten and how big the business of basketball has gotten. When I started in the Celtics front office in 2003, uh, really just a handful of us, uh, you, you know, a head coach was Jim O'Brien, a few bench assistants, and then that, that was really it. The players, maybe one trainer, one strength coach. Um, now, I've been out of the league for a few years, but toward the end of my time with the Phoenix Suns in 2018, I had over 50 people reporting to me, not including the players. So, so 50 staff, you, you know, coaches, wow. player development, training staff, uh, strength and conditioning, analytics, video. So if you break it all down, you're, you're really like the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Uh, you have to keep or try to keep a bunch of balls in the air. Um, obviously, what gets most of the attention and focus is the team on the court, as it should. But there are a lot of things behind the scenes that go into it as well. And then BJ mentioned a lot of the different groups you have to at least try to keep happy, uh, starting with the players, uh, also the coaches, especially the owner. The owner. Uh, but then you have the fans, the media agents. Uh, so I could go on and on. There's a longer mm. answer here. We could do a whole show just about that. But as you can see, it's a big job with a lot of responsibilities and a lot of pressure as well. Well, the hot take that BJ gave me the other day was that he was watching the Suns and he rang me. He said, the Suns are winning it all this season. Oh. Now, obviously, you have had a better look than almost anyone on the planet at Devin Booker and, you know, the way he's developed his career. And you saw obviously from a media standpoint, what happened last year in the finals, but what's your take on how you think they can do this season with the roster that is a large part in your doing and what you built and the vision that you kind of had when you were putting that together? I think the Suns are the best team in the league. I think they have the most talent. I think they have the most depth. Uh, one of the things I, I really like about the roster, in addition to the high-end talent, is they don't have a lot of holes. There aren't many weak li links in the chain, so to speak, even when they go to the bench or they have injuries or foul trouble. Or this year, the players missed time due to COVID protocols. Uh, they're able to backfill that pretty well. So uh, they got off to a relatively slow start just the first week or so. I think they were one and three. But uh, since that time, they've been consistently excellent. Um, but it's not going to be easy. As, as I look at the leagues, I, I think the best teams, um, you know, are in the Western Conference at the top. Now, I think the Eastern Conference is deeper top to bottom. And so it may be tougher to make the playoffs or even the play in in the Eastern Conference, trying to come out of the middle or bottom of the conference. Uh, but as I look at the best teams, especially projecting forward when they're healthy and have uh, all their pieces together, uh, I think Phoenix and Golden State uh, rise above the pack. Uh, Brooklyn, uh, you know, they have a lot of question marks there, but a lot of talent as well in the Eastern Conference. But yeah, I, th I think the Suns are well positioned and Look, you know, you, you don't always or I should say you rarely go from, you know, out of the playoffs or borderline playoffs to the champion. As BJ knows, a lot of times you have to climb the ladder, uh, get knocked down and then climb, climb it back up again. So I, I think that experience um, that Phoenix had last year in terms of uh, their players, you know, going through that, um, you know, being up 2-0 in the finals and then having the great uh, Giannis and uh, Giannis Adetokounmpo and Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton come back and win four in a row. Um, they, they made some nice moves shoring up. Uh, their depth. So I really like the, the way the Suns are positioned. And I think they have as good a chance as anybody to win the championship in 2022. Hey, Ryan, you know, one of my mentors said this to me early on in my career as an executive, you haven't been wrong. You haven't 
been in the draft if you haven't been wrong yet. And you have been right way more times than you've been wrong as an executive as far as in the draft. But I want to ask you this question. Devin Booker only averaged about 10 points a game Mm. at the University of Kentucky. What did you see in him, Ryan, that made you say, this guy could be? Because that's a difficult scout, okay? It's easy when you see the 20-point guy or you see, you know, these, you know, Kim Olajuwon or David Robinson or Tim Duncan. But what did you see in Devin Booker that said, that's our guy? BJ, as you know, the pre-draft process is a process. And watching Devin in the high school all-star games, he was a you know McDonald's All-American and played in some of the other top high school all-star games, but he wasn't a top 10 player, you know, in those games. He was kind of on the periphery. Um, and then at Kentucky, he came off the bench. Now that was a loaded Kentucky team in the 2014-15 season that went to the final four. In fact, they went to the national semifinal undefeated. Uh, and Devin Booker and Tyler Ulis were the backcourt off the bench, uh, backing up the Harrison twins, Andrew and Aaron Harrison were the starters. And I mean, if, if uh, it gives you any indication how good that team was, we took Devin Booker when I was GM of the Suns with the 13th pick in the 2015 NBA draft. Wow. He had three teammates off that team drafted ahead of him right off that one Kentucky team. So they had four of the top 13 picks. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns went number one. Willie Cauley Stein went in the mid lottery to Sacramento. And then the 12th pick just before Devin was Trey Lyles to Utah. So that was a loaded team. So I I think for us, BJ, um, you know, we, we loved his shooting ability. We liked his size, um, but really we didn't see him do a whole lot else. Nobody else. uh, Nobody saw him do a whole lot else when he was at Kentucky because his role was primarily as a spot up shooter. When we got him in our gym in the pre-draft process and started playing competitively, uh, some one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, uh, we, we saw some of the playmaking, uh, some of the ability to create shots for, me- for others. But more than anything, I think the thing that really stood out about Devin was the competitiveness. What was the fact that when he was scoring one-on-one and nobody could stop him, we, we tried to change the drill actually and move on. Cause as you know, BJ, you have a limited time to right. try to get everything in. Uh, Devin's like, no, no, no. Um, I won't say it on this because it's a family show, but you know, ble- bleep that. We're going to keep going until somebody stops. <laughs> he's a young man. He's very confident. And who, who are we to tell him? No. So we just handed him the ball and he kept scoring. So that really made a good impression on us. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, looking back in the draft, he was probably the second guy on a lot of boards. And, and you know how that works out, BJ, where teams right. are between two guys, they take one guy, uh, and then that pushes a player down. I feel like that's what happened with Devin. And, and certainly, you know, I, I benefited from that individually. And the Suns franchise continues to benefit from a guy that I think will be in the Hall of Fame someday. I was going to ask you a similar thing about Mikael Bridges, because we're really looking at this Phoenix Suns team. And Bridges is kind of known as a role player around the league, but he's shown flashes of potential that he could really step up and be a key piece moving forwards. He was, of course, picked by the 76ers. And that was a pick that you traded away and then a couple of seasons before. And then you traded back for him, you know, when you had, I think it was Zaya Smith that you picked and traded in exchange for Mikael. What stood out to you about him? in order for you to go and trade for him on draft night. Yeah, that was an exciting night, Mo, not only for, for me, but for the Suns franchise, the 2018 draft. Uh, we had the number one pick that year. We took DeAndre Ayton in the center out of Arizona, who's, who's played well. Um, but, you know, and then we had the 16th pick. And, and frankly speaking, we didn't love anybody in that range at 16. Uh, there, there were a couple of players we liked kind of in that mid to late lottery 
uh, area starting at about you know eight or nine um, on. And then we thought there was a pretty significant gap to the next tier of players. And it, as BJ knows, having uh, done it on both sides, you know, on the agent right. side and uh, on the front office side, uh, it, the, the gap between players isn't always even. Sometimes there's a big drop to the next uh, group of players or even the next one player. So we really like Mikel Bridges. He was one of the guys uh, we were pursuing. And, and, and the way that trade came together was very unusual, guys. Uh, Philadelphia drafted Mikel Bridges with the 10th pick uh, with the intention of keeping him. They did not plan on trading him. And so what we did, what I did was say, look, he was one of the guys we really liked. We're coming back at 16. Uh, if you're not going to trade him now, let's talk closer to the 16th pick, because obviously there were a few picks who had to go off the board in between 10 and 16. And I said, let's talk closer to 16. Um, you know, let us, we'll give you good value. It's just a six slot difference, but we'll give you good value just to take bridges. He was one of the guys we were targeting and Philly said, okay, it depends on who's available at 16. Uh, sure enough, uh, we re-engaged probably around the 14th or 15th pick, uh, verbally agreed on a deal, and then then took Zaire Smith and then threw in an unprotected first-round pick. So that's how that deal went down. Uh, keep in mind at that point, uh, we, we had Devin Booker in the backcourt. We had DeAndre Ayton in the frontcourt. And we thought Mikael Bridges was the perfect guy. I think he's one of the best perimeter defenders in the league at this point. I'm biased, right. but I think the guy can really defend. Uh, he's become not only a good spot-up shooter, especially from the corners, but he's added some versatility off the dribble. Uh, so we thought he was the perfect fit between Booker, who was uh, you know, our, our franchise centerpiece, and Aiton, who we just drafted number one overall. You know, you know, Ryan, going through this draft and listening to you, I'm going, wow, you know, this it gets so complicated. Would you mind sharing with our audience a little bit your draft process, right? How does a player end up going number one? How does a player, you know, for instance, how does a Draymond Green get to the second round? You know, can you give us a little bit of your process, how you're managing all of this? You're, you're managing your team. You're dealing with trades. You're looking at the draft. You're looking at cap. You're projecting into the future. Owners, can you give us a little bit uh, behind the scenes or peek behind the curtain of what goes on to your draft process and what that really looks like. BJ, I think what a lot of people don't realize is it starts years in advance of when, it, when a player is drafted. Um, I, I'm, you know, been doing this a long time. I was in the league uh, in 2003 to 2005 in the Celtics front office when we were able to draft players right out of high school. And, and we did that, actually. All three years, uh, Danny Ainge was, was the GM, and uh, we drafted Kendrick Perkins in 2003, uh, Al Jefferson in 2004, and Gerald Green in 2005. And, and I bring that up because uh, you're not able to do that anymore. But uh, really, that was kind of the Wild West, as you remember, BJ, in those days, right. trying to get information about players uh, who do not pass through Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky. Um, you know, the stats weren't very good in high school. Uh, the video was hard to get if you could get any. Um, obviously, most of those players, if they were uh, potential NBA prospects playing against high school players, they dominated the competition. So it's hard to see them in competitive games. Uh, so it really, I, I think that helped me get a start in the business. And we had some good success, you know, with, with that trio of players we drafted in Boston. So I bring it up because um, the process starts well in advance, even with the one and done guys uh, like a DeAndre Ayton, like a Devin Booker. The process starts before that in high school and AU. Um, not to go for too far on a tangent, but I do, I do hope that is something the NBA kind of reverses and lets NBA evaluators back in high school gyms and AAU gyms, because uh, like anything, BJ, as you know, th these are big decisions. So the more time you have to evaluate the players, uh, the better. So, so I think that's something that looking ahead, um, we'll see if the league does roll back. For those who don't know right now, uh, the rule is you have to be 19 years old. 
uh, and one year removed from your high school graduating class. So you don't have to go to college. And that has been a recent change with players either going overseas. Um, we've seen guys like going back a little ways, Brandon Jennings, uh, Emmanuel Moutier, and then more recently, LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton going to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, that's one option. Uh, last year, that's something that I think Sharif Abdurrahim and the folks with the NBA have done a really good job at is the G League Ignite program. Uh, they right. had two of the top seven picks, yeah. I think it was, last year, the G League Ignite. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a G League team, but these are uh, basically the top players coming right out of high school. Uh, last year, they had two kids that, with a lot of talent. Jalen Green went number two to Houston, and then Jonathan Kaminga, I think, went number seven to Golden State. So uh, there are a lot of different ways to do it. Um, you know, I, I could go on about the, the process, but really you want to start as early as possible, uh, build a baseline, gather information and intel, and then continue your evaluation all the way up until the draft. Because as I mentioned with Devin Booker, sometimes you see something late that changes your mind. And, and luckily with us in the case of Booker, it worked out pretty well. Right, I have to ask you a quick question, just real quick. When you met Kendrick Perkins for the first time, he's a media <laughs> star now did he use the <laughs> phrase carry on did he use the phrase carry on back then in high school <laughs> you know what Perk was really quiet and that might surprise some people Kendrick Perkins I was 23 years old when we drafted Perk I think he was 19 so I've known Perk you know for almost 20 years now uh the fact that he is a, a multimedia star now you know on different platforms that, that's amazing to me well you know I watching know. him come out of Clifton J.O.'s in high school in Beaumont Texas he had yep. the Texas drawl he was quiet you, you know and, and he's really blossomed I mean as a key part of that Celtics championship team in 08 and the team that went back to the finals in 2010 when uh, the you know the Lakers BJ's got the Lakers jersey hanging behind right. him but the Lakers Kobe and, and those guys beat us uh, but to see him blossom and develop uh, if you asked me 20 years ago would, would Kendrick Perkins be on national TV and be the star of you know, the finals and all that? there's no way there's no way I would have seen that, uh, but he's done great. We've done some media work together. And that's one of the fun things about this business. As you guys know, like BJ, you and I have worked together in different capacities, right, right. doing shows with Kendrick Perkins, who we had as a player with the Celtics, doing shows with Brian Scalabrini, who we had as a player working with right. you. Uh, it's a small industry and, and you know it's been a lot of fun interacting with those people in different well, roles. Well, right. I just want to say this because it's the appropriate time. Mo, carry on. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one more question about the draft uh, just before we continue. How do you weigh up the ever ongoing debate between talent and fit? Because if, for example, we take the draft in which you picked DeAndre Ayton number one, that draft now, there's been so many talented players. I heard, I read that you had your eye on Luka Doncic as well, Marvin Bagley. Also, Trey Young has come out and become a very good player from that draft. But obviously, with already having Devin Booker on your roster, DeAndre Ayton, maybe fit-wise, was the better guy to go with because you're then pairing your ball-dominant guard with an elite big. Whereas if you put a Luka Doncic in there, as talented as they both are, you know, you've both got two guys who need the ball in their hands to be effective. So how do you weigh up the talent versus how that player is going to fit into your team? Because so much of a draft, like talking about Marvin Bagley, his career may be on a completely different trajectory if he wasn't drafted by Sacramento and he had gone elsewhere. So how do you weigh that up, that decision? It's a great question, Mo, and I'm not sure there's a perfect answer for it. Um, I think it's simpler than people make it. And what I mean by that is you, you find a best player and then build around him. And, and I've done that twice in my career. I mean, in the Celtics, uh, when I came in the front office in 2003, uh, working with Danny Ainge, and we hired Doc Rivers the next year to be the head coach, uh, we had a guy who was going to the Hall of Fame in, in Paul Pierce, um, who was in his prime, and we needed pieces around him. So we went out and acquired Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett. Uh, we, we drafted Rajon Rondo and Kendrick Perkins, and uh, that was the nucleus of a, of a really good team. 
Uh, in Phoenix, the situation was different. Uh, when I got hired in, in 2013, uh, the team had won 25 games a year before and, and finished last in the Western Conference. And ESPN had ranked the Suns as the least talented team in the league. And, and I bring it up not to cast aspersions in any way. Um, they, they did a nice job with draft picks. They had some assets going forward and some flexibility. But uh, I just thought the team needed a lot of talent. And it needed to build uh, kind of from the ground up. So after being, uh, you know, an above average team the first two years, uh, we really went and, and broke it down. And it was painful breaking it down and building back up. Um, but yeah, that, that was our, our thought, Mo, and that was our process. Um, you know, as BJ said, like, I don't, I don't care if you're Red Auerbach or Jerry West, you're going to make some mistakes in the draft. There are going to be some things that happen that you don't see. Our thought in Phoenix uh, was load up on young talent, uh, draft picks, um, you know, extra picks, cap flexibility. Um, and then, you know, once we have a, a core and a nucleus, we felt we could build around that and then start to add veteran players to them. And, and the current front office has done a really nice job of that. Um, you know, I, I, when I was let go in 2018, I felt like we just kind of hit the bottom and we're hopefully starting to come up. But, um, you know, so that was our thought process. And you're right with Devin Booker, uh, an elite offensive talent, uh, a ball dominant player who's more than just a shooter. And I think he's showing that he's a playmaker as well. Um, we're, we're, you know, his weaknesses, I guess, especially at that time, we're, we're defensively uh, probably rebounding is not a great rebounder. So if you can bring in a guy who's an elite rebounder, uh, who I thought we thought had the potential to be a very good defender, uh, which I think Aiton has certainly improved a lot in those areas and will continue to improve in his early 20s. And then, you know, you, you layer in bridges. Uh, who doesn't need the ball as much, can play off the ball, spot up and shoot. That was kind of the thought process. And I think that's what gets a lot lost in a lot of this is when, as BJ knows, he worked in the Bulls front office. You're drafting for a specific team. This isn't rotisserie basketball. Um, yeah. you, you can't just draft whoever and disregard um, not only the positions and the players you have on your roster, but where the franchise is in the timeline and, and trajectory. Are you trying to build through the draft and, and going a little slower? Or do you have... Paul Pierce or LeBron James, one of these guys in his prime, and you need to win now uh, before that window closes. So that, that really all factors into it, Mo. But more than anything for me, you find a best player. Luckily, we found one in Booker. You build around him, try to maximize strengths, minimize weaknesses, and put together a complete team. Well, if we go a bit further back before you drafted Devin Booker, when you first got hired by the Suns in 2013, I think that first season when you were there, you guys exceeded everyone's expectations. You were just one game out of making the playoffs in the Western Conference, where I think a lot of people expected you to just go straight into a rebuild. And that brings us across to looking at the Eastern Conference now. You know, you mentioned how deep the Eastern Conference is, but overachieving as a franchise who should be rebuilding perhaps, you know, kind of sets the expectations high. I'm looking at like the Hawks and the Knicks and how high the expectations are because they overachieved last year. And this season, they haven't really lived up to expectations. But as someone who's worked in the Celtics front office, the Celtics expectations are super high, not only because they're the Boston Celtics, but also because Tatum and Brown perhaps overachieved so much at such a young age. So now, even though they're only 23, 24, 25, the expectations are there that they need to be in the Eastern Conference Finals looking to contend. What are your thoughts on the current Boston Celtics? And obviously with the trade deadline coming up, I just read a report now that they're looking to move Al Horford and basically anyone aside from Tatum Brown and Rob Williams. What's your assessment of the current Boston Celtics? And, you know, if you were hypothetically in charge over there, what would you be looking to do in terms of the direction of the team? <laughs> well, if I was in charge over there, I wouldn't be able to join you guys in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ryan, you're, what do you mean? Exactly. Join? Come on, Ryan, you got, you got to join us. <laughs> uh, no, in all, in all seriousness, 
Mo. I think they're approaching it the right way. In fact, they recently uh, made a move uh, with Juancho Hernan Gomez going out. Um, the reason for that was financial flexibility. As BJ knows, they're into the luxury tax, um, but but this move gives them the ability to get under the tax. Moving off of Hernan Gomez, it was a three-team trade. Hernan Gomez going to San Antonio. Bryn Forbes, a shooter going from the Spurs to the Denver Nuggets. And then the Celtics got a couple guys uh, in, in, in Bowl Bowl. And uh, in, in, in the guard out of South Carolina, his name I'm blanking on in a minute. PJ uh, Dozier. Uh, PJ yeah, Dozier. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, PJ Dozier. Uh, and both of those guys are injured. So be interested to see uh, if the Celtics hang on to Dozier and or Bull Bull. Uh, keep in mind the trade deadline's just a few weeks away at this point. Um, but but I think they're approaching it the right way. Obviously, Brad Stevens is new to the role. And uh, as BJ knows, it's a big role and, and it takes time to adjust to it. Even if you've been in the league like Brad Stevens has, um, you know, now I think the advantage he has is he's been with a franchise for a while and had a lot of success. So nobody knows especially Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown better than Brant Stevens does. Um, so, uh, he, you know, he knows how good those guys are. Um, I, I do think they'll look at moves uh, for me, starting with Dennis Schroeder. Uh, they signed him to a one-year deal. Uh, there are some restrictions in terms of what they could pay him as a free agent next year. So I think Schroeder will be in play. Um, but but I, I think that's the right approach. If, if those are the th uh, three guys that they have kind of off limits, uh, Brown, Tatum, and Robert Williams. That, that's what I would recommend. And look, when you're an average team, the record says they're about a 500 team. Uh, I think, you know, they have played better lately in January, and I think they will improve, but uh, I think they need more playmaking. They need more facilitation. Uh, I would put just about everybody in play and really see what the market bears for Shooter. Because I think not only Mo, would that be something that's beneficial potentially for the Celtics, they free up playing time for Peyton Pritchard, who's played well as he's gotten more minutes lately. I think it could also be good for Schroeder, especially if they get him to a contender or a team with a role for him that may have more ability to pay him next year when he's a free agent than do the Boston Celtics, who have a, a pretty significant payroll, especially with the money to those top three guys, Brown, Tatum, and Williams. You know, Ryan, I like to ask executives this because it's a very difficult question when they come on, come on to the show. What is your philosophy and how do you deal with an underperforming team as trade line, as the trade eating deadline approaches? And I'm talking in, for, for instance, this year, the Atlanta Hawks, they get to the Eastern conference finals. Clearly there were some expectations now around the league with their fan base. And suddenly now they see themselves this year on the outside, looking in what's the, the line there between being patient and saying, we need to move on. Like, how do you deal with that level of expectation and underperforming at this point as you get closer to the trading deadline? That's a great question. I think there are different ways to do it. Uh, Travis Schlenk, the president of basketball operations with the Hawks, has done a terrific job. I mean, that team yes, that went to the Eastern Conference Finals a year ago was really young. As, as you know, BJ, teams that young usually don't make it um, that far, you know, especially when, when your best players, uh, Trey Young, John Collins, and those guys right. are young. So I give them a lot of credit. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're 18 to 25. That really surprises me. Uh, I thought they were a team on the rise. Um, they have had some injury issues, some COVID issues. They recently got DeAndre Hunter back, I, I think, who will help a lot, especially on the defensive end. But Yep. The way I approached it, and, and Travis Schlenk has been very um, open about this, is you know he said publicly in an immediate interview a week or so ago that look we're not good enough, and, and this is this is not what we expected, and, and not what we're going to tolerate going forward. Uh, so I, I think you know the best way to do it, in my opinion, guys, is go to the players either directly or uh, as BJ knows, there, there are different ways to deliver the message indirectly. <laughs> like, but, but, but my, my, my thing would always be you guys make the decision. I, you know, as a front office, we don't make that decision. I don't make the decision in terms of 
whether to add to the team, which, you know, obviously you, you try to add if you're, uh, you know, going for it, especially if you're a contender, uh, or to hold and kind of, you know, stand pat and see what the group has, or, or to go the other way uh, and break it down and start trading off veteran players and things like that uh, for younger prospects and draft picks and things like that. So that was the message I, I would try to deliver either directly or indirectly. You guys choose the players. You, you guys choose which way we're going to go. If we win, uh, the group is playing well or even playing hard and, and you can see uh, some potential for an upswing, then you, you might stick with what you have or even add to it. Um, but if the team is kind of mediocre or you don't like what you're seeing, I think you have to shake it up. I, I think you have to do that, um, especially with, with underachieving team. But um, you guys hit the nail on the head. And that's something that I don't think is talked about enough. When you overachieve one year, and, and I think for me, the Knicks are maybe even a better example of this because I think right. the Hawks are still relatively young and have a lot of young talent that can improve yeah. internally. Mm -hmm. um, the Knicks, what they did last year really reminds me a lot of what Mo mentioned my first year with the Phoenix Suns when the team went from 25 to 48 wins. Well, then the expectations are, you know, how, how much higher are you going to go from there? And I think uh, if the talent on your roster is capped at a certain level and you don't have superstar players or you don't have a young star who could really develop and, and, and help your franchise take off uh, like John Morant has done, for example, in Memphis, right. uh, then, then it's hard. And managing yeah. expectations is a big part of the job. So uh, I, I look at Atlanta. I think they're one of the teams that is the most likely to make a move. And then, you know, I, I look at New York, uh, right around 500, sitting just outside the play in the Eastern Conference. I think that's a little bit tougher. Uh, the other mitigating factor there, as you guys know, is there's no more difficult media market than New York City. Uh, so when you set the bar high, uh, you, you know, your, your record's slightly under that uh, percentage of wins. Uh, there is a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny that comes with a lot, some of these jobs. So, you know, I've got a kind of a two-part question. Uh, one interesting thing you did at your time at the Phoenix Suns was the team where you had the three-point guard lineup. You had Bledsoe, Dragic, and Isaiah Thomas, which was an interesting experiment because so many times NBA teams and organizations, they try different philosophies and sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes it doesn't work too well. My question would be with that is, with that experiment of those three guys all on the court at the same time, is that coming from yourself as the executive? Is that something you take feedback on from the coaching staff or pressure from ownerships or other people in different basketball operations role to kind of put those things together. And then when you see it and it's not quite working as you expected, how many games do you give it or how far in advance of the trade deadline do you start making calls about offering these guys to other teams and trying to reshape what you've got at the moment? Yeah, great question, Mo. Um, it's interesting how that team is viewed. We only had it together for a little over half a year. Yeah. Um, but that was the year after we won 48 games from the most improved team in the league. Uh, we, we took some big shots in free agency in 2014. I tried to get in the mix with LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Chris <laughs> Bosh, some of those superstars. Um, if you guys remember, LeBron, as he uh, as is his right, really took a while in free agency. He dragged it out for a week or so. Um, and so anytime you even have a remote chance to get LeBron James, I think as an executive, uh, this is a zero-sum game. It's, you know, 30-team league and only one holds a trophy. Well, if you if you have any chance to get LeBron James, you take that chance to get LeBron James. I don't <laughs> the rest of it. Goes out if, if you like Miami, Arizona's not a bad place to be either. You know, I can see, I can see the thinking. That's, that's what we were hoping. That's what we are hoping. And, and the team, you know, that had gone from 25 to 48 wins. And uh, Goran Dragic, I think, was an All-NBA player the year before. Uh, and then the, the, the pitch, pitch to LeBron's group was, you know, he can bring another guy. We had enough cap flexibility where we could try to add uh, with LeBron either a Carmelo or a Bosch. Uh, you know, basically do what Miami did maybe with, with Dragic instead of Wade, you know? So um, 
so you know that that was the thought process um when that didn't work out we were relatively late in free agency and we thought isaiah thomas was an undervalued guy given how, how well he played in sacramento um so our thought mo and bj was to bring in isaiah um, we signed him on, on you know i think on a team-friendly contract and then just see how it works out and 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 you know that, that's obviously viewed controversially now um a lot of people forget that we started that year again in, in a loaded western conference 28 and 20 Two of the losses were when guys banked in threes at the buzzer. I think Blake Griffin hit one and Chris Middleton hit the other. So we're two banked in buzzer beating threes away from being uh, 30 and 18. Um, wow. And so, you know, we, we knew it wasn't a forever solution, but, but the challenge was, and this is where I, I take my share of responsibility for this organizationally. I don't think we communicated well enough with the players that this isn't forever. Be patient, you know, hang in there. We, we tried to deliver that message, uh, but Dragic was hitting free agency. Isaiah Thomas was frustrated with coming off the bench, which are understandable things. Uh, and, it, and it blew up on us. And frankly, that, that kind of, you know, put us down the rebuild path. Um, so it's, that's why it's so hard. It's so fragile yeah. as, 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 as BJ knows. And, uh, you know, we're sitting here doing the show guys. And one of the things that's trending recently is newsworthy is, is Frank Vogel on the hot seat with the LA Lakers. Yeah, well, Frank Vogel, yeah. The LA Lakers won a championship 15 months ago with Frank Vogel as their head coach. So I bring it up because it really is fragile and delicate uh, in terms of winning or in terms of, um, you know, going back to the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, they had, they thought they really had something, you know, less than a year ago. Uh, maybe they do really have something, but right now it looks a little bit tenuous. That's the hard part about this job, guys, that these things ebb and flow. And, uh, you know, you try to try to do your best to hold on when things aren't going well, and then hopefully right the ship and get it trending in a positive direction. But, uh, you know, these, these teams don't usually move in a straight line. There are a lot of ebbs and flows and ups and downs along the way. So, so. As, as an executive, just, just real quick, you know, when, when your team, you know, is performing well, but you have unhappy guys that you need to move like the Celtics do with Schroeder right now, or the team is disappointing like the Atlanta Hawks right now, how close do you get to the trade deadline? Because from a fan's perspective or a media perspective, oftentimes it seems like just before the trade deadline, one move will happen, which will trigger a whole series of other moves. But how far in advance do those deals start being talked about? And how, when do the phones start ringing? When do you start making calls about, is there any interest in this guy? Or we want to go after this guy before the trade deadline? Yeah, there have been a few minor deals that have happened, you know, recently, including the one I mentioned between Denver, San Antonio, and Boston. Um, but the big deals usually do happen closer to the deadline. Uh, deadline is on February 10th this year, which is a Thursday. I'll be in Atlanta covering it live for NBA TV, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but I, I think really that Monday, Mo, if I, you know, that Monday morning, you have four days, really three and a half days uh, to get down to it. And um, it starts with the big dominoes. So this year, I'm, I'm keeping my eye primarily on Philadelphia uh, with Ben Simmons. Uh, but you also look at the teams like Atlanta, like Indiana, who have un under underperformed their expectations. Um, you know, Sacramento uh, may be doing some big things as well. Keep an eye on, you know, De'Aaron Fox, uh, Buddy Heald, uh, those guys there. So, um, you know, th th that's when it starts, because what you don't want to do as an executive is make a minor move or a move that may you know, incrementally improve your team, uh, but miss out on a move or a player that could really improve your team. So that's why sometimes uh, the market is held hostage. I, I mentioned it in 2014 with LeBron James as a free agent. And look, we, we were happy to wait. Um, but but in, 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 with a trade deadline, uh, it's kind of the same thing sometimes where if you're a team, say, who wants Ben Simmons, you don't want to trade for a lesser player and take your, yourselves out of the Simmons market if he may be on the move. So uh, really, you know, there's a lot of talk, but uh, there's a reason there is a deadline and as bj knows the, the offers get a lot more serious a lot more real the closer you get to the deadline 
And that's why I, I, you know, that's why I love doing, doing the trade deadline live for NBA TV. I did it a year ago. Uh, Victor Oladipo was traded to Miami right at the last minute. Kyle Lowry stayed with the Raptors. Um, that, that's, that's, you know, the deadline is there for a reason. And I think a lot of times it comes right down to the wire because that's the final impetus to get a deal done before your roster is relatively set heading to the playoffs and even into the offseason. Okay, Ryan, let's, you and I, just you and I, let's have a little conversation. No one's listening, just you and I. Our good friend down there in Philadelphia, Daryl Morey. And that's the elephant in the room around the league. How do you think that's really going to play out with Ben Simmons? How do you think that ends up playing out? Because that's going to have an effect on what the other players, you know, what the other GMs and are going to do. How do you think that eventually plays out? Because this is a very difficult situation, a very unique situation with Ben Simmons and how this has all kind of come about. But how do you think that in the end plays itself out? I think the situation is unfortunate. I, I don't think it's good for anybody involved, to be honest with you, the, the, the right. player, uh, the team, the league, the players association, his agency. I, I don't think anybody looks good in this situation. Uh, and I preface it that way, BJ, because I do think Ben Simmons is going to be traded over the next few weeks before the February 10th deadline. I do. Yeah. And, and I think he should be. And look, I understand why Daryl Morey is taking the tax uh, he's taking. I, I, I totally get it. I've done the job at a relatively high level for almost two decades. Um, you have to say, look, you know, we, the guy's on a multi-year contract. We'll take years if this takes years. Uh, that is a leverage play. And that is how you gain leverage and, and, and let everybody know we're not desperate. We're in no hurry. Um, you know, don't make us bad offers. Uh, we're, we're only pull, we will only pull the trigger if and when we get a good offer, whether that's before the February 10th trade deadline or even sometime, you know, next season, next offseason, whatever it is. Um, but the reality of it is you have a team with, with a very high payroll uh, who has a superstar. And, and that's one of the things I feel bad because most of the talk nationally about the 76ers is Ben Simmons. Um, Joel Embiid, for me, is on the short list of MV, M- MVP candidates. I and mean, what that right. guy is doing offensively, defensively, uh, just the skill, PJ, you know, just b- b- getting a defensive rebound at 7-1. That, that's one of the things I think people don't realize who haven't been up close to Embiid. He is huge. I mean, even some right. big guys, he dwarfs uh, in terms of not only his height, his length, his strength. He is a huge guy. So when you see him get a defensive rebound and dribble the ball up the court like a point guard and initiate offense or make a shot off the dribble, it, it, there's only been a few guys, I think, in the history of basketball who have been able to do that. And so I bring it up because you have a special player who's playing great in his prime. Uh, you have a team, you know, with a high payroll with Simmons and Tobias Harris and some other guys. Uh, but you also have a, a star in Embiid who does have a pretty lengthy injury history and some concerns about how well he will hold up. So uh, I think, you know, you have to uh, get a, even, a, you know, a, a pretty good deal. You want to get a great deal. Everybody understands it. But if you can get a pretty good deal uh, where the parts really complement Harris and Embiid in particular, I think you have to do that because as, as we discussed, these championship windows are short. These things don't last forever. And if you do have a chance to, to go from a team that now I think is a solid playoff team in the Eastern Conference, but uh, without something for Simmons, I'm not sure Philly advances in the playoffs given the depth in the East, I think you have to get the best deal you can for him, especially if it's some shooting, uh, some ball handling around Embiid. Uh, so I, I think he gets traded over the next few weeks. What do you think of, you know, the reports that came out about Philly trying to package Tobias Harris with Ben Simmons? Because you obviously probably understand the CBA, the salary cap a lot better than I do. But in my opinion, I don't know how that's a possibility for any team to take on both of those contracts, you know, given the current 
current situation of one of them not playing and one of them maybe underperforming relative to the contract. What are your thoughts on Philly trying to package both of those guys together? Well, certainly a lot of money to receive back in a, in a trade. And not, <laughs> not only this year, but carrying out a number of years. So, um, you know, to, to get those guys, uh, you, you'd have to be pretty certain it's going to work out. And they'd also have to uh, complement the pieces you have on your roster. But keep in mind, you have to send a ton of salary out just to get in the salary matching range for those two guys. So, um, you know, my, my guess is if both of those guys go out, it would more likely be in a multi-team trade, a three or four team trade or something like that, where right. uh, Simmons goes to one team, Harris goes to another, um, you know, that, that that's a possibility with these bigger deals as well. I think what, what's more likely is that Simmons gets traded individually and, and Harris, um, you know, stays in Philadelphia. I think that's the more likely outcome. But I, again, going back to what we talked about earlier with social media and how it's changed the game and changed the job, uh, now, nowadays, uh, any conversations or even ideas that you have, especially with teams that uh, may not, you know, be the most trustworthy or keep everything in, in the house, it, it, all of it seems to get leaked to the media. And from an executive standpoint, that really puts a lot of pressure on your relationship with the players and your communication with the players. Because, uh, look, Ben Simmons' situation is what it is. This is a choice by by Ben and his agency to take this route. And it's a choice by the team uh, to to take a hard line as well. Uh, Tobias Harris is out there playing basketball. You know, he's he's playing, uh, and and so. So to the extent that, you know, I think I saw a week or so ago that Harris said, yeah, I, I do hear it. It's bothered me. I'm trying to move past it. Uh, that is real. And, and BJ knows better than anybody. Those rumors as a player, uh, it, it can mess with you with your mind and, and throw you off your game a little bit. So I think there's a chance both of those guys uh, go out, Harris and Simmons. But I think more likely if Simmons is traded, it's just him individually or him with smaller contracts. Because uh, as you guys mentioned, that's a ton of money for one team to absorb back in return if they do take Simmons and Harris in a package. Right. Are you seeing a lot of movement? You think up? Uh, are you going to? Are you expecting to see a lot of movement in this trading deadline? You know, coming up to this, are you? You know, we're talking about De'Aaron Fox. We hear Sabonis. Uh, we're hearing a lot of guys. A lot of rumors out there. Are you expecting a lot of movement here prior to this uh, trade deadline? I think there will be a lot of movement, BJ and Mo, and the, and the reason for that, or a couple of reasons, but the main one I think is that. The contracts have gotten so big that very few players, as BJ knows, especially in that max range, are turning down contracts, even if they're not real happy about their situation. Explain uh, to our viewers, explain to our listeners what that means, right? Explain to our listeners, they're turning these down. What does that really mean? Can you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no problem. What I mean by that is players are just unclear players, veteran max players in particular, anybody in that maximum salary range, they are signing the extensions because um, individual player salaries now per year are in the 30 to $40 million range per year. And then, and then as the cap goes up, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, um, the business continues to, to grow, uh, you'll have individual player salaries over the next couple of years, north of $50 million for one year. And some of these, keep in mind, they can be up to five-year deals. So I bring it up because how could anybody turn down that kind of money? You know, even if the situation is not perfect, that's a lot of money. So I bring it up because um, if you look out uh, in the marketplace, teams that were really reliant on free agency, even as recently as a couple of years ago, will say, well, these guys are probably never going to hit free agency, right? You know, like in the case of Ben Simmons, he's got four years left on his contract. Um, you know, and that's the case with, you look around the league, just about every max player, uh, look, if anybody could make a hundred million or 200 million just by signing their name, just about everybody is going to do that. So I bring it up, BJ, because as you know, on, on the agency side, uh, free agency has become less of a focus, at least at the high, high end, the superstar end. Um, right. These guys sign contracts 
And then if they are unhappy, they can ask for a trade later. Um, so, so I think that does put more of a premium on the trade market. And, and I don't think that trend will, will end. I mean, as, as the, the salaries continue to go up, I think, um, look, no players ever turned down an extension, a rookie max extension after year three of his rookie scale deal. Uh, I, I don't see these guys turning down $150, $200 million uh, anytime soon. So I, I think that'll put more emphasis on the trade market in the short term and maybe a little less emphasis on the free agency market. See, that's surprising because a lot of people are saying they're not expecting a lot of movement now because teams are still scrambling to get guys in, get guys healthy and field a roster of players to be able to go and do that. Um, but also you, you mentioned like guys are taking the deals and then kind of forcing trades saying that they're unhappy. And it's basically free agency. If we look at what Anthony Davis did, he essentially forced his way to the Los Angeles Lakers, not as a free agent, but he said, well, if you trade me anywhere else, I'm not going to re-sign there. And then, you know, of course, Kyrie, when he was leaving the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Boston Celtics took a risk on trading for him. I know you and the Suns were kind of in the mix in, in those discussions with, you know, a three-team deal with Paul George being involved as well for the Indiana Pacers. But when it comes to those kind of deals with superstars, because it's a lot of salary to give up, as you mentioned, how do you know when it's the right time to pull the trigger and when it's not perhaps the superstar that you're looking for. It's better to perhaps slot on more assets and wait for someone else to become available. Yeah, great question, Mo. I, I, it depends on your franchise's timeline, uh, who your best players are, you know, who you're able to retain in, in, in a deal like that. And also you have to really be certain about why is the player, especially if players disgruntled or unhappy somewhere else, you know, why is he unhappy there? And, and what can we do better here or try to do better here that, that would keep him, you know, happy here and potentially cause him to sign an extension or, or make it somewhere that it, where he's not a rental, right? It's not a short-term rental because uh, we've seen other examples of that where team trades for a player, he's not as happy. And then, you know, he, he has to be retraded or leave via free agency. And that could put you in a, in a really tough spot, especially if you give up young prospects and or draft picks that, that can set your franchise back a number of years. So really, I think it's, you know, what does a player want? Uh, what is he looking for? And sometimes, uh, in fact, a lot of times what players are looking for can, can be a little different, right? You know, usually it starts with uh, a role, an opportunity to play well and be successful, and then obviously money financially uh, in terms of a contract. Um, but certain guys would maybe sacrifice a little money uh, for a quality of life, you know, living, living in a city they want to live in, being around uh, their family, especially some veteran players. Um, you know, from my experience, a lot of the younger players understandably want to maximize earnings because who knows what could happen. Uh, you know, they could get injured or something, especially the guys who haven't made, you know, tens of millions of dollars over the course of their career. They want to make as much money as possible to take care of not only themselves, but their family, which again, is completely understandable. So I think that all factors into it, Mo. You have to understand the player's mindset and mentality. And especially if, again, if somebody disgruntled somewhere else, you look at that situation, say, why didn't it work out there? This is where your, your intel, uh, your, your, your background on a player really comes into it. Um, and and if, if we do bring this guy here, how is he going to play on the court? Uh, how is he going to get fit in with our organization? How are we going to keep him happy? And then how are we going to retain him, uh, you know, if and when he approaches free agency? Uh, I think those are all discussions you need to have. And you need to be brutally honest uh, with yourself, because uh, if, if you make the wrong move in terms of giving up a bunch of young players or draft picks uh, for a player, and then the player bounces out of town shortly thereafter, as a head coach or a GM, you're probably not going to be there that long because you just set your franchise back a few years. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, right, since... You know, you've departed that scene doing, you know, the GM and executive route. You've been working a lot in the media. You've been working a lot here. First, can you share with our listeners where and our viewers where we could find you? And 
I want to ask you this question as well. Our good friend down there in Oklahoma, he has he has every draft pick for the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At what point, Ryan, is too many draft picks? At what point, you know, I could I give him a hard time. Our, our good friend Sam down there. I always give him a hard time. At what point do you have too many draft picks? At what point? Or is that impossible to have too many draft picks? I think it's impossible, but uh, as, as, far as, the, <laughs> as far as the media side, I, I'll get into why in a minute. Uh, as far as media, BJ, uh, my uh, biggest role now is as an Odyssey NBA insider. Uh, so Odyssey has big sports talk radio stations all over the U.S. And so I okay. appear on different shows, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I think tomorrow I have one inter- interview in Memphis and one in Houston, uh, but oh, they have sh- stations in all the big markets. Uh, so that's really neat to, to you know, be able to talk about the entire league and do shows around the country. Um, for the TV perspective, NBA TV uh, nationally right. is, is the one I, I do most consistently. Last year I did the trade deadline and free agency period for NBA TV. And I'm going down to Atlanta in a few weeks to do uh, the trade deadline again, which, uh, you know, you know, guys like us, we love the action, and, right? So and, being there fans, live, uh, deals are coming in, you know. For, for fans in the UK, if you want to tune in to Ryan, you can watch on the NBA app. You can watch NBA yes. TV live streaming in there. Just in case, you because a lot of people ask me, where can they watch this stuff? The NBA app, you can watch NBA TV live, so you can check Ryan on Trade Deadline. But sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, interrupt. No, that's, that's great info, Mo. And the plan, at least as of now, uh, is on February 10th, which is a Thursday, we're going to do a live show from the Atlanta studio from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, keep oh, in wow. mind the trade deadline's at 3, so we'll have about an hour running up to the deadline and then, you know, an hour to analyze the, the trades. You'll be and, right in, know, your, some of them yeah. you'll be right in your environment. You, you're right in the action. You'll be right there. <laughs> uh, um, but, well, well, the, the nice thing about this, BJ and Mo, is I've gotten a lot smarter because I don't actually have to make any of the moves. I can just say what I think. <laughs> Somebody else can do it. I, I, just, I just talk about it. You know, I haven't lost a game in, in, in years. Um, but, but so that's what I'm doing. And then also some work with NBC Sports Boston on, on Celtics coverage, uh, the, the Celtics flagship station with, with Kendrick Perkins and Brian Scalabrini, who we talked about earlier. And then I'm also doing some teaching uh, with Albert Hall uh, in Hall Pass Media and Sports Business Classroom, who is, as BJ knows, uh, he's been right. to this NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. Yes, and for any of yes. your viewers and listeners who haven't been to Las Vegas in July, if you're a basketball junkie, which everybody watching the show uh, right. and listening to the show, I assume is, you have to get to Las Vegas for summer league. Uh, it's it's a one of a kind experience. So Albert and Warren Legary really built that into what it is yep. today. Now, where, where games are televised uh, on ESPN, on NBA TV. Uh, so so that's kind of what I'm I'm, I'm doing. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, BJ. I don't think you can have too many draft picks. However, I do think <laughs> I, I do. I know. I, I, I disagree. Go on. I'll let you finish. I do think you can use too many draft picks. And what I mean by that is uh, draft picks are really valuable currency as far as facilitating trades. Uh, you, you know, you can do just about anything you want with draft picks. You can move up in the draft. You can trade a pick or multiple picks for a player. You, you can use a draft pick to move off a salary. Uh, but I, I do think there is a point of diminishing returns where you draft too many young players and try to develop them at the same time. Uh, I think those are, you know, some of the issues we had in Phoenix were along those lines. I think Philly got into some trouble there as well. Uh, now, mm-hmm. that being said, um, you know, you know, the thought is the thought process is what I walked you guys through earlier is that, um, you know, you hope they all hit but you don't need all of them to hit. If, if you're drafting a lot of talent, if a few of them hit, um, you know, like Joel Embiid and as controversial as it is, Ben Simmons yes. in Philly uh, or DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, Mikel Bridges yeah, in Phoenix, um, you know, some players do fall by the wayside. So that's what it is. I, I fully expect Sam 
Presti and the, the Oklahoma City Thunder not to draft, you know, a dozen guys or how many they have over the next few <laughs> years. The first round. But, but I think they'll use those picks to facilitate deals. And, and really, uh, you know, they're a team that every team in the league will have to call because with their assets, they can be involved in a trade, even as a third team to take on money, take on draft picks. There are a lot of different ways the Thunder can go. Yeah, you make an excellent point about you can't draft everyone and give everyone minutes and develop everyone. And that's what I was leaning to when I said I disagree. Also the fact that you could potentially lose leverage in some deals. If you have all of these draft picks, teams know what you're trying to do. You're not trying to collect draft picks for all of eternity. You're going to try and cash in those chips at some point. And that's why a lot of media give criticism to the Celtics front office in perhaps not cashing in all of those draft picks from the Brooklyn deal and the other ones that they'd garnered throughout various other deals. Um, But just wanted to say before we wrap up, Thank you so much for blessing us with the wisdom and the knowledge and the insight into the league. The last thing before we wrap, what is your big prediction? Do you have a destination and a player that you expect to see move and where you think that they're going to get moved to before the trade deadline? Well, uh, since since we go big here on your show, uh, I'm going to go with Ben Simmons getting traded to the Western Conference uh, sometime between now and the deadline on February 10th. The teams I have my eye on are the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, you know, obviously, there's been some turnover in Portland. Neil O'Shea, the longtime president of basketball ops. Uh, Terry Stotts, the longtime head coach, are out. Um, but by their team, I, I think uh, Simmons would be a great fit alongside Lillard if they can get him with Lillard. Um, I also have my eye on Dallas. Uh, the, the Mavs have quietly played very well lately, especially they've defended well. Um, I, I think Simmons' best role, guys, is a, as a secondary playmaker, a screener, a uh, roller. Think of him playing off of Damian Lillard or Luka Doncic. Uh, you, you maximize his strengths, uh, you, you know, the physicality, his passing ability. You minimize his weaknesses because he's closer to the basket, especially if you get two defenders on the ball guarding Doncic or guarding Lillard. Uh, so I really like those two, but, but keep an eye on Sacramento as well. They're another team that came into the year with, you know, relatively high hopes. They have a lot of backcourt talent um, with Buddy Heald, Tyrese Halliburton, De'Aaron Fox, uh, Davion Mitchell, who they just drafted. But uh, I think that'll shake out too. So uh, if you're an executive trading a star player, ideally you'd like to send them to the opposite conference. Uh, so I think Simmons will be on the move. And I, I keep my eye on the teams in Portland, Sacramento and Dallas to see if he ends up on one of those three. Well, Woj, you better watch out because you heard it here. Ryan is breaking news. And if that happens, Ryan, would you come back? Would you please come back to explain how you do that? Absolutely. You don't have to if, if your it sources. doesn't happen, we'll, we'll, do, we'll just cut this part from the segment. <laughs> we'll yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll cut this out. Ryan, I want to thank you so much. I just want to say this. I want to thank you so much for coming on. You are an incredible friend, and I always appreciate and respect our friendship. And I'm going to tell you what, you're going to be back in the league as an executive because you're one of the best in the business. And thank you again for sharing your wisdom and everything here with our listeners. And, you know, Mo is a true, and I give Mo credit, Mo is a true Celtics fan. (laughs) And for, I'm asking this question for Mo. Can you just share with us something in that happened in the facility of Boston, because this is a true Boston Celtics fan. What is it like to work with Danny Ainge? How about that? What was it like to, to work with Danny Ainge? This guy is a true Celtic fan. What was it like to work with KG? That's his guy. And win those champion and win that championship there during that I'm, season. I was so, literally just hey, flicking through this before we start, before we start recording. So. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> 
Can you just give yeah, us a boy. can you give us a 30 second story that would because Bo is that, a that, true that could be a Celtics whole different fan. show. And now now that I know Mo's such a big Celtics fan, uh, BJ, I don't have as many rings as you do, but I'll bring my one championship ring ne- next time I wear it uh, on on the show that you know is largely oh, uh, because Bo, of that, that would guy make there. this life. Kevin, that would make this life right there. Kevin <laughs> Garnett. Um, you know, real real quick, Kevin Garnett's the most intense person I've ever been around in my life. I've never met anybody more competitive than him. Everything you see on on the court. He's like that off the court too, right? Whether it's playing cards or pool or whatever, he, he is just wired differently. He's he's one of one. Uh, and, and finally, Paul Pierce is maybe the hardest working player I've ever been around. I know a lot of people don't see that uh, with Paul, but one quick story. I was in the practice facility late on a Sunday night. I think it was in April or May. It was in the playoffs. I'm in my office watching film alone. All of a sudden, one light comes on in the weight room and I hear a treadmill just flying. It sounds like the treadmill's at 10 or 11. And I wonder who could possibly be in here late on a Sunday night running. Well, it was Paul Pierce running. Uh, the team had an off day. He wanted to get some cardio in. Uh, that's what people don't see. And as you know, BJ, having played with, right. with, with, with Michael and some all-time great players, that's what people don't see. But when you see Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and those guys produce on the court, uh, there's a reason behind all the stuff that goes into it off the court that nobody sees. I think that's a great way to end it and a great lesson for any young players in particular who are listening to your show. Appreciate that. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for coming here and sharing with the fans. Uh, fans in the UK, like I said, you can tune into Ryan on NBA TV through the NBA app. He's going to be there trade deadline day. And you can check out, I'm sure you can find his radio shows online and you'll see him everywhere as his media career is just at the beginning. I'm sure it's going to go up and up before an NBA team takes him back into the front office as BJ alluded to. I just want to say thank you to you both for coming on the show. Thank you to everyone who listened. And as always, everyone at home, get buckets. <laughs>